Coming up next, focus on medical education, part of this month's featured series on ReachMD XM 157. Who's in charge here? The doctor? The patient? The team? No one? You're listening to a special segment on health education on the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today are Dr. Robert Schockett and Dr. Hoover Adger. Dr. Schockett is the director of the New College's Advisory Program, a unique approach to educating the current generation of medical students at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Hoover Adger is professor of pediatrics, director of adolescent medicine, and the team leader of one of the colleges in the program. Today we're discussing relationship-centered care and how to teach it. Welcome, Dr. Schockett and Adger, and thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. It's a privilege to be with you, Dr. Rutenberg. And this is Rob? Yes, it is. Thank you. And Hoover, you're there too? Yes, thank you. I'm pleased to be able to join you. Should we start off with what your concept or a definition of relationship-centered care is, and why is it important? Sure. This is Rob Schockett. I can take the lead on that. Well, following on the heels of the patient-centered care movement, which began in the 1980s and put at sort of at the center patients' values and perspectives and preferences in the dialogue with a physician about decisions of care management, the relationship-centered movement started in the early 90s, recognizing that the relationship between the doctor and the patient is really a central aspect to care. There are some unique aspects to this construct that with a strong relationship comes emotion and affect, and that's an important perspective, and also a very interesting concept of reciprocal influence that as much as patients are impacted by the doctors that form relationships with them, doctors are similarly influenced in a very profound way by the patients they take care of. So we've been intrigued by this notion of relationship-centered care and the opportunities it might have for training medical students within the context of our clinical skills program and our advisory program. We've all had patients that give us a hard time. Have you ever had to fire a patient or have you ever come close? Yes, I have had that experience of having to ask a patient to leave my practice. Did you feel that You could have handled it differently had you been thinking along the track of patient-centered, relationship-centered care? Typically in that context, each circumstance presents its unique challenges. And one of the things I find in forming relationships with patients is the actual relationship. Is it forming well? Is there a sense of trust building between the patient and doctor from the patient's perspective? And if so, that's a marker of a very healthy relationship. And what are the clues you look for to say we're clicking that the trust is developing. Again, I'm thinking in terms of you're teaching medical students who are new to this. What should they take as the clues, the signs? How do they know that it's working? What are you trying to show them? This is Dr. Adger. I think you have a very perplexing question about firing a patient. And in the context of teaching relationship-centered care, I think that one of the focuses here is recognizing and tending to affect and emotions. And We also attend to these same concepts within the development of the relationships that we have with our students. When I think about times where I've had conflicts with patients and the difficulty that arises around that, frequently it centers around miscommunication or misunderstanding of the patient's perspective and my perspective as the managing physician. 
And I think that you know one of the lessons that we're attempting to have the students get a better understanding of is how tenuous and how important these relationships are and what are the components that go into developing relationships. And when there are differences or differences in perception, how one gains a better understanding of that. And there's a very famous book, In Search of Excellence, and there's a statement in there, perception is the only reality. I think that's an important concept to teach. Have you been successful in getting that point across? The point across, you mean, is, uh, is what? To realize that it's not about you, doctor, but it's the message the patient receives is their reality. You know, you don't have a serious illness and the operation's going to take care of it. You know, they're thinking operation and maybe it is serious. And, you know, it's that perception that the patient takes from what you're saying. There's a lot of fascinating health communication research nowadays, which is really helping to inform how we teach the students. As an example, we spend some dedicated time with nonverbal communication. There's some fairly convincing data that if a physician's nonverbal gestures and other paraverbal behaviors are somewhat incongruent or discordant with their verbal message, the patient believes the nonverbal message. And so how do we teach students how to be completely congruent with their nonverbals, the way they engage and build trust with a patient and not rely only on words? The other thing that we encourage is to explore a patient's health beliefs and concerns, and often patients won't volunteer this information. It really needs to be pursued. And so if a doctor gives a patient some advice, finding what the patient's reaction is to that and then exploring it is considered to be a core aspect of interviewing. If you were going to begin this process, where do you start teaching the art of communication to medical students? This is Dr. Adger. I think there are a number of key concepts that we attempt to get across to students. One is the process of listening to the patient's story. Another key aspect is the importance of building a history and the importance of establishing an accurate narrative um, as related by the patient. We've talked previously about a number of different ways in which we try to go about helping the student to grasp these skills in a much more comprehensive way. Videotape is not the only other method, but is a helpful way in which students learn even better how to master some of these skills. I'm just going to pause for a moment to welcome those who are just joining us to this special segment on health education on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today are Dr. Robert Schockett and Dr. Hoover Adger from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and we've been discussing relationship-centered care. I have an article here that I've carried around since 1980, written by Franz Ingelfinger, who, depending on your age, you may or may not remember, but he was longtime editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And the article is entitled Arrogance, and it's whether a physician should be arrogant, paternalistic, and authoritarian. And he talks about the Jekyll and Hyde, the good and the bad, and when it's right. But he made a statement in it. A physician who merely spreads an array of venables in front of the patient and then says, go ahead and choose, it's your life, is guilty of shirking his duty, if not malpractice. How would you respond to that? I agree. I think what he's describing is more of a consumerist model of care, where the physician abdicates his or her role as a guide for the patient. I think that one of the great things about relationship-centered care is that it includes the physician in the equation so that 
if in an extreme patient-centered encounter, it's all about the patient and the physician doesn't feel like they have the space to be able to provide some guidance, something is seriously missing there. That's really fascinating because I guess that's something I've missed in so much of the jargon about relationship-centered care. So the physician still is an important cog in the wheel. Absolutely. For example, if a patient is saying that they're refusing a form of treatment that's considered standard treatment where the consequences of their refusal is so obvious to the physician, I think under the relationship-centered paradigm, the physician would need to say, based on a sense of caring for that patient, like, I'm really having a hard time with this idea of you refusing care because I know how effective this can be and how much it can have an impact on your life because that's a very genuine physician's reaction to a patient who declines therapy. Dr. Adger, do you feel the same way? I do. Are there some studies that have been done showing impact of patient-centered care? There actually are some very interesting studies that are tied to outcomes, and they're more tied to studying particular communication skills that physicians might do. So this goes back to the late 1980s, actually, where there was some research with diabetics and hypertensive, and they found that when patients were able to convey more negative talk to the physician, in other words, explain what might be going wrong with the treatments, that they were managing themselves, Mm -hmm. that those patients who reported that their experience of the physicians was more patient-centered and more engaging, that their hemoglobin A1Cs and their blood pressure control was superior to those patients who didn't experience physicians who had a dialogue in that fashion. Dr. Adger, have you any personal experience in that in your adolescent medicine practice? Well, I think what Dr. Shockett is talking about is very important in terms of both the ability of individuals to be empathic in their relationships with patients, as well as the importance of reflective listening and to really get a sense of how patients are experiencing their illness, that oftentimes individuals don't take an opportunity to understand the patient's perspective and realize the power that patients have to make judgments and decisions about you know, what happens in terms of being a primary determinant of, you know, what happens with regards to the outcomes that they experience. Do you think the real-life state of affairs in medical practice today is going to impact this? Again, going back to Dr. Inglefinger, and this is 1980, getting to know the patient, his convictions and his problems, and the attitudes of his family will, of course, help. But in these days of group practices, ancillary help, specialization, and mobile populations, getting to know the patient may be as difficult as containing medical costs. Currently, popular measures to enhance medical efficiency also do not help. If a patient, whether an expectant mother, an alcoholic with early cirrhosis, or a heavy smoker with lung cancer, is first processed through a battery of questionnaires or computer terminals, then interrogated and examined by ancillary personnel and finally seen by the doctor to be delivered, to be subjected to a liver biopsy, or to undergo pulmonary resection, the patient will not know the doctor and vice versa. I mean, this is 1980, and here we are 28 years later. It sounds like he's talking about the present. How are we going to overcome these obstacles to really getting to know the patient? I think these are some of the core challenges that we and many doctors experience today. It sort of goes back to values and why we became doctors to begin with. Did we become doctors so that we could truly help individuals and form linkages, you know, meaningful connections with our patients? And I think that there are opportunities. We just have to keep searching and working hard to develop the connections. And I think that even if you don't have time for as much as you'd like to have to do a full patient interview, 
there are many, many opportunities in even brief dialogues with our patients to form meaningful connections. Then the other thing that's happening is that team-based care is becoming more and more important so that even though one individual may not get to know the patient as well as in the older days, hopefully members of the team share common values and uh, can make a person who they're caring for collectively as a team feel cared for. I think that's a very positive message to end on. I'd like to thank Dr. Robert Schockett and Dr. Hoover Adger, who've been my guests, and we've been learning about practicing relationship-centered care. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I leave you with the words of Alexandria Penny. The ultimate test of a relationship is to disagree, but to hold hands. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and take advantage of our on-demand and podcast features, which gives you access to our entire program library. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health. Tune in each hour for the ReachMD feature series, Focus on Medical Education. We thank you for listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.